You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, you knew this show was going to be about ESP. I mean, how could you not? A great number of people believe that they can sense when something dramatic is about to happen, such as to their relatives far away. The belief that extrasensory perception might exist is... More common than rhinovirus. (laughs) That's right, the common cold. So, of course, being as talented as you are, why wouldn't you have the ability? Okay, well, I might be sounding a bit skeptical of ESP, but that's because, as I've said more than once on this program, there's this massive decades-long experiment going on right now about ESP, and it's called Las Vegas. I mean, if ESP were real... Don't you think Caesar's Palace would have trashed their Corinthian columns and shut off the 18-foot waterfall a long time ago? Wouldn't you expect people to want to seriously cash in with that kind of talent? But as far as I know, the lights still beckon on the Las Vegas Strip. So let's take a step back, because like any other extraordinary claim, we'd love for the one about ESP to be true. So I try and keep an open mind. Really, I do. But we do need evidence. Well, now a researcher claims to have just that with his own more modestly funded experiment into ESP. Okay, a lot of people have claimed proof of precognition, but the difference here is that this paper by a university researcher is being published in a refereed scientific journal. So it's obviously worth examining seriously the claims and the evidence presented, and we'll do that. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. This is Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking on Are We Alone? But first, I'll focus very hard on what I'm about to say next. All right, for those of you who said hedgehog, you're correct. That's exactly what I was thinking. That's because I've sent my brains on vacation. Hey, this time off is just what I needed. Could you pass the sunblock? My medulla is getting a bit pink. Watch the sand. Grit in your hippocampus is a bummer. Ah, I can feel my neurons relaxing already. There are only two constellations that you can be sure most people are familiar with, the Big Dipper and Orion. Now take the case of Orion. In the upper left-hand corner of this constellation, his right shoulder, in other words, there's an orangey-looking star with the name Betelgeuse. Okay, it looks serene and unchanging, but no, oh no, it's actually getting old fast, and its death throes could threaten our planet in 2012. That is, according to an Australian physicist. That's pretty alarming news. So Seth turned to skeptic Phil Plate. Well, Phil, as if 2012 didn't uh, bode destruction enough, apparently there's another threat that is offering to do in the world, namely a nearby star. How's that going to (laughs) work? How's it not going to work, you mean, as usual? Uh, Yeah, you know, it's not so much that there are any threats in 2012. It's the threat of the threats of 2012. 
all this nonsense that people make up about it. And we've got a new one, and that is the star Betelgeuse. Now, this is the star that's in one of the shoulders of Orion, actually, up in the wintertime. It's a bright star, easily visible to the naked eye. And astronomers know that it is a red supergiant. This is a massive star, 20 times the mass of the sun. And these types of stars end their life, not with a whimper, but with a bang. They explode. They become supernovae. Now, Betelgeuse is about uh, 650 light years away, something like that. 650 light years. Uh, Phil, that's quite a distance. That's on the order of uh, 4,000 trillion miles. Yeah, it's a long way off. And it turns out that for a supernova, you need to be much, much closer, about 25 light years away before you really start damaging the Earth. And that, that comes in the form of destruction of the ozone layer and some other things like that. And you really have to be even closer than that to really be dangerous. So Betelgeuse is clearly way too far away to have any hurt on us. Well, if it were to go off in 2012, or for that matter, even 2013, what would we see? Would we even notice? Would Mr. and Mrs. Front Porch say, my gosh, Marge, there's something up in the sky that looks different? Oh, yeah, you'd see it. This is one of the brightest stars in the sky. And when a star like this blows up, it gets even brighter. So it will outshine Venus. It'll actually be roughly, very roughly, as bright as the moon gets in the sky, even though it's just a little dot. Now, the thing is, when is it going to do this? This is the big question. Now, stars like this, uh, stay as a red supergiant for a long, long time before blowing up. Maybe a million years, maybe more. And we don't know how long it's been a red supergiant. We just know the clock is ticking. It could blow up tonight. It could blow up in December of 2012. But really, it could blow up 500,000 years from now. So the odds of it blowing up next year are, in fact, really slim. Why is this in the news then? I mean, we've known about Betelgeuse and the fact that it's a, you know, a super giant star. We've known that for a long time. That's, that's not news. Why is it that this story suddenly has legs? <laughs> You know, that's a really good question, and part of it is because of 2012. There has been some speculation on the web that Betelgeuse would blow up in 2012, but if you look this up, you'll find that it's all sort of conspiracy theory, anti-science uh, websites that, that don't really use science unless it happens to support their theory that they like in the first place. But what happened was a uh, an online news site in Australia picked up on the story, talked about Betelgeuse blowing up, connected it with 2012 and you know they kind of said well you know it, it may or may not do this they, they didn't play it up but they didn't really talk about the actual science of this and I saw this weeks ago and thought well you know what the heck but then Huffington Post picked it up and Huffington Post is a huge online news source and as soon as I saw that I thought well here we go and I very hastily wrote up something on my blog because so many people read the Huffington Post I knew this would go viral and it did this got picked up by so many media sources who did not do any fact-checking. And so it just exploded as just a big pile of nonsense on the web. And happily, I was able to get some of the, some of the word out about this being you know, not really going to happen. Exciting stories, even if they make no sense and have no basis in reality, they just get spread, you know, at the speed of light. All right, so it exploded on the web, if not in the sky. Uh, the, there you go. But the fundamental problem here is that even though Betelgeuse is going to explode eventually, who knows what eventually means? Could be hundreds of thousands of years, a million years in the future. And beyond that, when it does explode, it's so far away, it's not going to interfere with your gusto-grabbing life. So my question to you is, well, are there any near supergiant stars that we should be worried about? Maybe you've got the wrong bad guy. Well, not really. The, the closest star that can blow up 
is Spica. This is a, a blue-white star in the constellation of Virgo. It's actually, again, one of the brighter stars in the sky. As you might expect, it's a massive, hot, bright star that happens to be close by. But it's on the thin, hairy edge of the distance it needs to be to hurt us. But it's still going to be a long, long time before Spica blows up. So honestly, in my opinion, and I've researched this, uh, there are no stars in the sky that can potentially blow up and hurt us at this point in time. Well, Phil, I am so relieved to hear this. I will no longer have my Betelgeuse nightmares. <laughs> yeah, just don't say it three times in a row. Phil Plate, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you, Seth. Join us next month for Brains on Vacation. Is that Sarah Bellum over there? What a dish. Phil Plate is keeper of the good website, badastronomy.com. This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own cheese at home, the chemistry behind souffles, methods for botanical infusions, the formula for perfect deep-fried chicken, and much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Season 3 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen or going to youtube.com slash labxnas. That's youtube.com slash labxnas. We recognize our five senses, but besides sight, smell, hearing, touch, and taste, could there be a sixth? The ability to read thoughts or intuit what will happen next. Extrasensory perception, or ESP. Now, many studies have been conducted on it, formally and informally. Certainly, I run my own tests every time I buy a lotto ticket. But now a scientist claims to have evidence of ESP, and a major scientific journal finds his work credible enough to publish. The paper in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology sums up nine studies carried out into precognition, the idea that humans can foresee future events, by prominent Cornell University researcher Daryl J. Bem. The publication of the paper, entitled Feeling the Future, has caused a stir, well, more than merely a stir. We'll discuss later in the show whether it should have been published at all. But first, what the study claims to have found. Now, when you imagine an ESP study, you might picture someone dramatically holding a card to their forehead, eyes closed, reading the contents. Well, the BEM experiment was less dramatic, as befits an academic laboratory study. In this case, 100 college students were asked to determine random events. One challenge for these fortune-telling minds, correctly identify where a picture would appear on a computer screen. Okay, it's not exactly foreseen tomorrow's newspaper headline, but Dr. BEM's paper claims that the results prove precognition. Our skeptic Jim Underdown is no stranger to ESP tests. His investigators at the Center for Inquiry in Los Angeles have been running their own for a decade. So, Jim, this uh, professor at Cornell University, Dr. Bim, what did he do? What was his study exactly? They took a bunch of undergraduate students and did a video-based or actually computer-based study where students were making choices before a random number generator made those choices for them. So they did a few different things. 
for instance, one, they would be presented with two curtains on the screen, and they would choose one of the curtains, right or left, and then a picture would appear either behind the right or left curtain. So they were tested on their accuracy and precognition. So that sounds like the television program where you're supposed to guess behind which curtain is the big value prize. What, what kind of uh, pictures would appear behind the curtains? Uh, some of them were erotic pictures. Some of them were negative pictures. I think in that in that curtain part, it might have just been neutral ones where you're just trying to figure out which had the uh, picture as opposed to the blank wall. Okay. So that was one experiment. But he did nine different experiments. They were not all this sort of 50-50 chance what's behind, uh, which curtain is the uh, the prize behind. No, all of them involved some sort of uh, predictive behavior or of learning a word or something which you would then, then the computer would then generate afterward. So some of them involved positive or negative pictures, which presumably the person would try to avoid or be attracted to, and then, you know, decide whether the next picture would be positive or negative. One of the ones involved subliminal pictures being flashed and uh, choosing, you know, whether the subliminal picture would be flashed or not. You know, it it was basically just things that could be quantified about something that the student was guessing about. All right. Well, in order to keep this clear, uh, let's just take the most straightforward experiment. And that was the one where they see two curtains on the screen and they have to push a button, presumably, to say, I think the picture is behind the left one or the right one, right? Exactly. I mean, in the instructions, they say one of them has a picture behind it. The other has a blank wall behind it. Your task is to click on the curtain that you feel has the picture behind it. So then they would do 36 trials. They said several of the pictures contained explicit erotic images, you know, uh, things like that. So if they also, they gave people the choice, if you object to see such images, you should not participate in the experiment. I suppose nobody refused. Uh, Probably not with the college students. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. So, you know, very naively, I mean, you would think that if you did this experiment with somebody who did not have ESP, who could not, you know, read the computer's mind, that they would get 50% of them correct. Just, you know, random chance. You could have uh, highly trained squirrels watching the screen and they would get 50% of them correct. Exactly. The Howard Stern show had a chicken predicting football games who would win the game. So it's... It's the same sort of thing. It's it's a coin flip, a yes or no, or a heads or tails proposition. Okay. Well, what did he find? Well, he found that 53% of the people could choose the erotic picture or the target picture or the curtain that had the picture behind it 53% of the time. And, and how many trials, more or less, was that? That's over about 1,000 trials that they did with 100 students. Well, I may be doing my statistics incorrectly here in my head. Uh, but, Jim, it seems to me that 53%, if you only have 1,000 trials, you're going to expect sort of random fluctuations of a, of a few percent. It's like doing a political poll. So 53%, if somebody said they flipped a coin 1,000 times and 53% of the time it came up heads, I wouldn't think it was because somebody had told that coin, you know, you better come up heads or, you know, I'm going to spend you or something. I mean, is that significant? I'll tell you, Seth, that's the first thing that came through my mind. It just it's 53% is not at all impressive in my world. We test these people all the time who, you know, make claims about psychic ability and precognition and the same sorts of things that Bem was testing for. And 53% is barely worth the raise of an eyebrow. Well, Jim, I obviously want to talk to you more about your take on this study. But 
Let's take a closer look at that statistics question because there's been some talk in the media that the statistics may have led researchers astray in this case. Why don't we take a listen to what Jeff Router, who's at the University of Missouri, he's a quantitative psychologist, which I take it means that he uses more mathematics than couches, has to say about the statistical analysis, and then we'll uh, join you again for your comments. Is that all right? Fantastic. Jeff, a Cornell professor thinks he has evidence that precognition, which is essentially knowing something's going to occur before it occurs, actually exists. He's done lots of experiments, and in the end, he makes a statistical argument that it's apparently something like 95% likely that this sort of ESP is real. Now, without my trying to intuit your answer, what, what do you say to that? Well, I'm not sure the evidence is that strong. And one of the great things about Dr. Bem is he's incredibly straightforward and clear about what he does. So it's very easy to analyze what he did and think about it carefully. And one of the things that we've been kind of complaining about for years is the standard way people do statistics called significance testing. So in standard statistics, you try to figure out kind of the probability of the data under one hypothesis. In the statistics that I advocate called Bayes factor, you're trying to figure out the probability of the data under several competing hypotheses. Okay. I mean, this guy is well-established in his field. He's analyzed experiments, I'm sure, for decades. And so why suddenly is his analysis not correct? It's completely conventional. So, for example, the approach Dr. Bem uses actually assumes it's impossible to accept the hypothesis of no ESP. One can either accept ESP or fail to accept it, but one cannot state positive evidence for a lack of an effect. So so you're saying that his approach made the assumption before he started the analysis that ESP couldn't be for real. And it would be so desirable in this case to have a statistical method that allows you to kind of state evidence for no ESP if it existed or state evidence for ESP if it existed. But the methods we use are asymmetric. They only allow you to state evidence for an effect. And in this case, the effect is ESP. It's kind of a known problem of significance testing, the testing that Dr. Bem does. So what we did was we developed a way of putting it together. And again, we said, let's compute the probability of the data under the ESP hypothesis And let's compute the probability of the data under a no ESP hypothesis. And then let's talk about that ratio. And we came up with 40 to 1. In other words, we think Dr. Bem's own data are 40 times more likely if there was ESP compared to if there wasn't ESP. That sounds like you're supporting his conclusion. Now, the question is, how do you interpret that 40 to 1? This is called a Bayes factor, what we did. And this is not the probability of the hypothesis given the data, but it's the probability of the data given the hypotheses. And those are slightly different things. Now, the way you should interpret that 40 to 1 is it describes how you should change what you believe. So if you went into the experiment and you thought, eh, even odds that ESP exists versus doesn't exist, now your odds should be 40 to 1. You just multiply them. If you thought ESP was twice as likely to exist, now you should be 80 to 1, because that twice as likely gets multiplied by my factor, the 40 to 1. Now, I came in, let's just say I came in at a billion to 1. I find ESP to be fairly... Um, Unlikely. I think, you know, there, there's a lot of 
well-confirmed principles and theories in physics and biology that would need to be re-examined. And given the kind of revision we would have to think about in physics and biology, I'd probably come in at a billion to one. Now, I have to change those probabilities from a billion to one. I have to divide that by 40. So that means I'm 25 million to one. Right. It still sounds right. like you'd be rather rather skeptical. But let me just ask you one more question here, finally, about this, sure. Jeff. Uh, is, is there the possibility, even aside from these intricacies of the statistical analysis, that there is what we call in astronomy a selection effect? I can imagine that a lot of people, and, and I do this even at parties, which isn't a very well-controlled experiment, but anyhow, uh, have run experiments trying to see if ESP works. Put a guy right. in another room and have them hold up, you know, cards and right. see if you can guess what right. color they are and that kind of thing. And, you know, you run these experiments and it turns out, well, you know, it doesn't work. And if you ran, you know, 20 of these experiments that didn't work, and then right. you ran one that did work and you published that one, you, sure. you, you might be led to yeah. think that it really works. There are a few ways to think about this. One is to say, you know, if there are this many out there, how does that affect these probabilities and odds? I think the most useful thing is kind of the forward-going solution. Dr. Bem has laid out in real clear detail exactly what he did. I bet you there are going to be 30 or 50 or maybe more labs that are running experiments right now on exactly the same procedure. Because this is out, I think we're going to know the answer in about three or four years, the full answer, and you're going to see a host of failures to replicate. Now, I could be wrong, and I think that's going to end up being kind of the proof. So it's exciting in that we're at this time where I'm really looking forward to see if people can replicate this or not. Well, all I can say then, Jeff, is that if your suspicion that it's going to go forward and prove that ESP doesn't exist, I think that that just proves that you've got ESP. <laughs> and I want to thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I hope this was helpful to you. So, Jim, what I take Router to be basically saying is that the statistics that uh, Dr. Ben used weren't really quite appropriate for what he was trying to do because there was this presumption that ESP couldn't be possible at all. But if you assume that it could be possible, then his results increase the possibility that it exists, but only by a factor of 40, so that if you figure it's only a million to one chance that it could be right now, it's only, you know, 25,000 to one chance that it's possible, but that still sounds like it's not very possible. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually glad that the uh, statistician could verify that, because I got a sense of that in the introduction to the paper itself, that he was coming to it from a perspective of a believer trying to confirm something that he felt already existed. So uh, that's gratifying to hear. I see. So now, one thing that, you know, motivates a lot of the skepticism about ESP is the fact that nobody seems to know how it would work, right? I mean, you know, brain waves operating on subspace frequencies or, or, or maybe a quantum entanglement or something like that. I mean... Isn't that a problem here, a major problem that, you know, how could you know? There doesn't seem to be any physics that it would allow ESP. You know, that's part of it. And, you know, on the surface, that's worth discussing. Just like with UFOs, you might say that any star system or solar system that could be producing ETs is too far away for them to ever get here. So just on the, you know, the sort of prima facie question that there's a real problem in how this would work. But in reality, we don't spend a lot of time on that. We're in the Ray Hyman camp that says 
you know what, we'll start worrying about how this works when we see that it works in the first place. Well, Ray Hyman, maybe you better explain that. That's the, the, the business. All right, let's establish the effect and then we'll sort out the physics afterward. Exactly. Don't even concern yourself about the hows until you figure out that something is actually happening. Well, Jim, given the fact that ESP has been generally regarded as not a real phenomenon for so long, the fact that this result supporting the possibility of the existence of ESP was published in a refereed professional journal suggests that it's significant, is it? I don't think it's significant. I I think the fact that it did make it into this journal is a little unusual. That's why the New York Times and other publications picked up on it. And that's, you know, it's always a sexy story when science supposedly proves ESP or some paranormal ability. But I I don't think that's the case here, but that's what it sounded like to the media. Well, is it because the uh, journal had published it? I mean, maybe it's simply that the public, a large fraction of the public, at least this is anecdotal, but that's my impression, a large fraction of the public believes in ESP, that they have the ability to know when their aunt has died or something like that. And so they they might just love to see that science was wrong and being skeptical about it. Yeah, I I don't think that the results of this trial are are making a statement that's that strong. Yes, you know, anyone who just reads the headline will say, yep, science confirms that ESP exists. But the scientific community, having read this, is not saying that. They're saying, oh, that's marginally interesting. Let's see what happens next time. And I think that's kind of where we're at, too. I have to ask this, Jim. It seems to me that if ESP really could work, if there was some mechanism, if there was some way to evolve brains that had an ESP ability, that that would be so valuable for your survival, if you knew what was going to happen to you in in five minutes, that it would have evolved, and we would see ESP ability not only in our own species, but in a lot of other species. Oh, certainly it would be selective for, you know, an advantageous trait. You know, even today in a modern, sophisticated society, anyone who knew what was about to happen would be in much better shape to live a good, long, wealthy life. Yeah, particularly the wealthy part. Well, what would you want to see to prove precognition, to say that there's really a a true effect here? Yeah, I'd like to see. I mean, the the methodology wasn't bad. There There were a few little things that the paper doesn't say everything about what went on. And sometimes really hanging around and watching people in action tells you things you never could have known through reading the paper. So you know, there might still be holes in this thing that we don't know about. What I would like to see is some real significant statistical, something that blows the bell curve out of the water and happens time and time again. And we've never seen anything like that. When these people start talking about they're wrong 40% of the time at best at these guesses, 40% wrong at a time just doesn't translate very well into the real world. You know, if your dentist chose the wrong tooth 40% of 7% of the time or your airline pilot landed safely 47% of the time, you'd have a real problem. So, you know, uh, we'd like to see a much higher success rate for just for starters. Uh, you'd have a real problem, but not for long. <laughs> okay. But couldn't I say, Jim, that you are biased? I mean, you're a skeptic. You direct the Center for Skeptical Inquiry down there in Los Angeles. So, Clearly, you're biased against these results. And, uh, you know, if you read the blogs and the comments that are made towards skeptics, 
They'll say that uh, you're, you just refuse to accept evidence for paranormal powers, irrespective of whether they might be there or not. Yeah, I've heard that criticism before, but my uh, and I am slightly biased. I'm biased in favor of the way the world really reacts and the laws of physics. Uh, and I'm also biased because the great preponderance of the evidence that we've seen, I mean, our independent investigations group has been testing these people for over 10 years now, and Center for Inquiry has, has been testing them for 30-some years now, and 100% of the people we've tested have failed these types of tests. So I don't know how I could come out of a 100% failure rate and not be a little biased against what this result is. <laughs> Jim Underdown, thanks so much for talking with me, but I, I guess you knew I was going to say that. <laughs> thanks for having me on. It's been fun. Los Angeles is where Jim Underdown is the executive director for the Center for Inquiry. Jim's analysis of the BEM paper was interesting, but during the discussion, he made an amusing statement referring to the results. He said, that's not worth raising an eyebrow. And it got us imagining the day when... Sit right here. Oh, okay. Hey, Jay, how are you doing? Everybody right. Okay, everyone, as you know, it's skeptical poker. Ante up, toss in two disbeliefs and one serious reservation. These poker andes are getting steep. All right, it's going to be dealer's choice. That's five-card unpublished stud ease. Here you go, Gary. Thank you. Molly. Great. Jay. Hey, you dealt me a weak statistical result. Shh, Jay, don't say what your cards are. Thoughts to yourself, okay? Yeah, right. We can't read thoughts. Yes, we can. 53% of the time. (laughs) (laughs) What? Left of dealer bets first, Molly. Well, looking at my cards here, I'll start the bidding and throw a little doubt on the table. There. All right, Gary. Well, I'll cast doubt as well. All right, getting warmed up. Jay? Does an unwarranted conclusion beat a hand-waving argument? Jay. Sorry, but I've never played. It's okay, Jay. No, in skeptical poker, a hand-waving argument always beats an unwarranted conclusion. It's the most dubious. Okay, but it doesn't trump, I've got a good feeling about this. Keep it moving, people. Uh, Jay, it's your bet. I've got doubts, too. Okay. I'm going to see your doubts and raise my suspicions. Hmm. Hmm. He's bluffing. You must have a good hand of bad data, Seth. You know, I'll see your suspicions there and raise you an eyebrow. What if she has an unconventional hypothesis? So? That's barely worth the raise of an eyebrow. I'll see your eyebrow raise Molly and give you all a sideways glance. Ooh. Mm. Mm. Well, that's pretty high stakes, Gary, skeptically speaking. I mean, you're basically showing total incredulity. So you fold? I didn't say that. Besides, it's Jay's turn. Well, I fold. Besides my hand-waving argument and an unwarranted conclusion, I only had these. You don't show your cards when you fold? Let's see, a couple of statistical outliers, and oh, so you had the study without a control. That's super dubious. Okay, folks, it's just the three of us. Our cards reveal a variety of unprofessional conduct, as befits unpublished stud ease. So what do we have as bets so far? Let's see. The ante of doubt, then raised suspicions and raised eyebrows. Okay, I'll see Gary's sideways glance and add more skepticism with my misgivings. All of them, a roll of the eyeballs. Wow. Wow. And one, you've got to be joking. I fold. Seth, I see your misgivings. Throw in my own, also my rolling eyeballs. My own, you have got to be joking. And I call into question your scientific results. He's calling. 
Read them and weep, Gary. I've got fudged data, a two-sigma result, a sample size of five, an unwarranted extrapolation, and... Bias on the part of the researcher. <sighs> Look at that. Yep. You can't get results more questionable than these. In most poorly monitored laboratories, no, you can't. I'll give you that. That's good, Seth. However, when there's total lack of supervision, grant money doesn't materialize, and the pressure for tenure is high. One total lack of rigor, and four, count them, four cooked lab reports with eraser marks still visible. Man. Unbelievable. That's not just dubious. It's fraud. But that's five-card unpublished stud. Ease for you. All right, I'll just take the winnings. <laughs> yeah, that's good, Gare. Okay, uh, one more round? Okay, all right, sure. yeah, yeah all sounds right. good. Okay, uh, Molly, dealer's choice. Okay, how about five-card draw-your-own-spurious correlation? Oh, yeah. That sounds uh, good to me. Deal me in. So that sounds all right. Coming up, if you play your cards right, that is, a discussion with the editor-in-chief at the journal Science. Is the ESP study feeling the future even worthy of publication in a major scientific journal? Also, could the brain really have such an unsuspected talent or maybe other talents beyond ESP? It's skeptic check on Are We Alone? But don't take our word for it. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Well, if anyone can see future events, it might be the editors at the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology when they accepted Daryl J. Bem's paper on ESP for publication. What they could have foreseen? The scientific outcry. The publication of Seeing the Future has caused a stir in some scientific circles, an uproar in others. Some scientists are quoted as calling the work pure craziness and an embarrassment to the field, not worthy of acceptance in a scientific journal. Others think the research meets all the requisite scientific standards and welcome the debate that comes with its publication. But note that it isn't groundbreaking unless the results can be duplicated. I asked Bruce Alberts, the editor-in-chief at the magazine Science, about the responsibility of recognized scientific journals in publishing surprising and questionable results, in this case, the BEM paper. I think it, it's worthwhile publishing because this issue is not going away. It will encourage others to uh, get involved. Uh, there's a big dispute about the type of statistics used. It's a pretty esoteric dispute, but it also will encourage people to think more deeply about how these kinds of experiments should be done and how they could be repeated. Okay, well, you're the editor of a major research journal, Science, and, and I think that a lot of people who are not scientists would think that the function of the editorial staff and the referees for a journal such as yours is to decide if some research is right or not. But, but that's not really true. Well, it's to decide whether it has a high probability of being correct. Science is never... 100% sure of anything. The wonderful thing about science is that we build on other people's results, so we want to get out results that will cause other scientists to do better work and to investigate questions in ways that they might not otherwise have done. So science is a very much a cooperative endeavor. So what our editors and reviewers do is try to ascertain whether this is likely to be correct, not whether it's absolutely correct. There's no way to know the latter. 
So in the best of all worlds, you're saying that the journal's role is to give everyone who can make a credible argument a, a soapbox, as it were, and let the research community sort out the truth later. That's right. In doing that, you don't want to pollute the literature with very bad science or mediocre science because that just gets everybody confused. So the journals do have a very important role uh, as a gatekeeper of what meets some standard, some minimum bar for putting it out there to the scientific community. And uh, let me say also that nobody's perfect, and even Science Magazine occasionally makes mistakes. Well, in the case of the ESP paper, there are, of course, a lot of prior studies, not to mention a large body of sentiment, that ESP really doesn't exist. But that existing paradigm, if you will, or maybe conventional wisdom, we should call it, that should not bias the evaluation of a submission. Or maybe it should. Well, I think it should bias it. In a case where a new finding goes against what others have found, you create a higher bar and you're more skeptical about the results and you look at it more carefully. But it should not be an absolute bar because science advances by people challenging the conventional wisdom. So, so if you go back to this ESP paper, you know, these statistics, as I understand them, said there's something like a 1% chance of this result being gotten randomly. So one of the things one has to worry is how many people have done this experiment and gotten negative results and not published them. So, for example, if there were 100 groups have done similar experiments and this one group got positive results, then that really means nothing scientifically. So that's one of the things you have to worry about because there's sort of uh, a strong tendency not to publish negative results. And it would be very hard to publish negative results on ESP because everybody believes that's the normal answer. So that's one of the problems involved in this particular publication. Yeah, that's actually a good point. All the people that ran ESP experiments and showed that it didn't exist, they just told their friends, but they never submitted that result to a journal because it merely confirmed what everybody believed anyhow. And now one guy, by statistical fluke, gets a positive result, and now suddenly the world's turned on its ear. What about the effect on a journal publishing a result that's highly controversial and then turns out to be wrong? I'm thinking now, for example, of the British medical journal, The Lancet, that published uh, this study by a gentleman by the name of Wakefield that seemed to establish a link between autism and uh, vaccination. They've had to withdraw that article, even though it was published. Well, I know that case very well, because when I was president of the National Academy of Sciences, my last job, uh, we carried out some eight studies at the request of Congress about the possible connection between vaccination and autism and repeatedly found that there was no scientific evidence. We looked at the Wakefield work and dismissed it. The problem there is that there are so many people who (laughs) like to believe that vaccination is harmful. There's so much spurious uh, email traffic and even some powerful members of uh, Congress who've had grandchildren with autism and concluded because of the timing between vaccination and the likely appearance of autistic symptoms uh, sort of conclude that that must be caused by the vaccine. So this has been a very unfortunate situation, which has caused many people not to get vaccinated, very unscientific and very harmful. But, you know, in the case of a scientist making up data or falsifying data, it's very hard for a journal to know that. And people do make mistakes of that kind, including Science Magazine. You may remember that we had published this uh, Korean paper claiming that you could clone human beings, and it turned out in the end that this was a uh, falsified, fraudulent piece of work. So, in fact, the journals run a real risk 
when you take on a controversial paper like this because of the possibility that it may not only damage the researcher's reputation, but yours. It certainly damages the journal reputation. I mean, Science Magazine is very sensitive to this. In the worst case, it makes you not want to take any risk at all, which is also not good. So everything in life is a matter of balance. I mean, if something really seemingly exciting is reported, Science Magazine will get referees to look at it and then decide whether we should publish it. And, you know, something that's exciting has some preference to something that's not exciting in novels. So there's a real uh, balance that has to be reached by a journal, and we're always trying to improve our own processes to lower the chance that we're going to make mistakes. Well, finally, Bruce, you've described how if a paper is later shown to be false or even falsified, you know, the journal will retract it. And that may satisfy the scientific, uh, the research community. But what about the effect on the public? Because the public has heard about this through the popular media, the newspapers, the websites, the bloggers. And in their mind, these false stories may have a great deal of persistence. The damage has been done. I agree that this is a, a problem. You know, there's no way the scientific journal can control it. In the United States, uh, what happened with the autism thing uh, debate was that the National Academy of Sciences put out something like eight reports uh, discrediting the Wakefield work. Unfortunately, the press prefers to publish the initial, advertise the initial finding, which to them is more exciting than the retraction. Now, you know, I think the public media have a, a real responsibility here. Scientists have a major responsibility. There's a big push to get scientists more out into their communities so that people understand how science works uh, and can really better deal with these occasions when false information has been spread through a particular publication. All right. Well, Bruce Alberts, thank you so much for talking with me. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Bruce Alberts is the editor-in-chief of the journal Science. Okay, so whether or not the BEM paper has found good evidence of ESP, what could the brain mechanism be that would allow us to foresee events or read minds? I'm not aware of any physical processes that would allow that to happen. From what we know about the brain and about physics, that it's not possible for precognition to exist. Neuroscientist Steve Macknick is the author of Slights of Mind, What the Neuroscience of Magic Reveals About Our Everyday Perceptions. He says the brain does display phenomena that leave us questioning our perception of reality. Some of the more extraordinary insights have been learned by studying patients with epilepsy. The gold standard in neurophysiology is to record from single neurons in the brain and measure their responses to stimuli in the world. And this is done in humans in epileptic patients who have to have these electrodes implanted in order to find their epileptic focus so that these foci can be removed. While they're doing these analyses for about a week, sometimes these patients have to wait with these electrodes in their head while they map their brain before their surgery. And during that period of time, scientists have a chance to do some experiments with them with these electrodes already implanted. In the parts of the brain where epilepsy tends to happen, there are neurons that are sensitive to specific faces like Jennifer Aniston or Halle Berry or President Clinton, Darth Vader, and also specific objects. So these are good parts of the brain to do this experiment where you would present stimuli such as erotic versus neutral stimuli and ask when do the responses happen. If the responses happen before you actually present the stimuli, then that would be really interesting and very hard to explain. 
and could potentially indicate precognition. Okay, but I take it from your, your comments here that the experiments that have been done in this regard where they actually get the measuring instruments inside somebody's head have not shown any evidence for ESP. That's right. Okay. Uh, the responses of the neurons always come after the presentation of the stimulus. But, Steve, in these uh, epilepsy patients for which uh, they've exposed the motherboard so we can uh, get some experiments in there, isn't there some result that suggests that the brain is actually reacting to stimuli before we are consciously aware of it? Right. Benjamin Livett in, in epileptic patients, he's a neurosurgeon who did experiments where he asked them to read a clock off when they felt that they were motivated to do something. And they could measure in the brain that the neurons were firing well before the person felt consciously aware that they were doing that. And now with more modern techniques with fMRI, uh, John Dylan Haynes in Germany has replicated these experiments and shown that it's up to seven seconds ahead of the time when you're consciously aware of a decision you're about to make. You can see what the decision's gonna be and predict it reliably from the brain waves. Gee, I think I want an implant that's going to speed up my reaction time because there are going to be some situations where I don't want to wait that seven seconds. <laughs> okay, well, what about other phenomena that our brains may be capable of and that have been demonstrated that, uh, you know, we wouldn't expect? One of the things that we can demonstrate that is very curious still in the neurosciences is the feeling of intuitions we have, especially when they're correct. It has to do with our expertise in life. So our brain has developed automated systems for doing things like, let's say you learn to be a ballet dancer and you take ballet lessons for years. And what that allows you to do by the end of that is that while you're dancing the ballet, your body is doing a lot of it automatically and you're able to think with your conscious cognitive processes about other things besides specifically the dance steps you're doing, maybe about what you're going to do in a minute or something like that. And so your brain can learn to do automated things in dancing, but they can also learn to do it in other things. For instance, uh, Susanna Martinez-Cone wrote an article in Scientific American once about how soldiers were able to, in Vietnam, develop certain intuitions about when they were going to contact Charlie. And so they use these intuitions to keep themselves alive. And so there are people who believe these things really exist, and, and I think they're probably right, that we do have intuitions that we use all the time in order to do our jobs that are based on our expertise in life. And we can't necessarily recognize the source of the information, but that doesn't mean that this intuition or the source of the information is wrong. But so, doesn't that sound like, for example, emotions, which in a way are a shortcut, a thinking shortcut? We are repelled by something, and that presumably is based on lots of experience, maybe 200,000 years of experience, in which we know that something that discusses might be dangerous. And so it's just a shortcut that our brain takes to tell us to get out of there before something else goes wrong. And maybe that was the same thing that had been sort of programmed into these Vietnam uh, soldiers. I'm absolutely on board with that. I think that that's probably how it works. Whereas emotions give you this incredibly strong motivational feeling, which most people will want to follow, intuitions are similar, but they seem to be more at the level of information rather than about emotive content. But it may be very similar circuits in play in both systems. Well, certainly the brain can be fooled, as any magician, any illusionist, any mind reader, if you will, could tell us. You know, our brains are pretty good at doing the things that would keep us alive, but they're not always so good at analyzing what's really going on. That's right. What we are as people is we're a bunch of electrochemical activity inside our brain, and we drive around in this meat robot, basically. 
and this robot provides us with information through our eyes and ears and senses in the form of very sparse, very dirty, noisy information that's not very good. And from that, we build a simulation of the world that we actually perceive, and that's what the world is to us. We have no windows in our head to see outside. And I'm not saying that the real world isn't out there. It is, but none of us have ever lived there, and none of us have ever even been there for a visit. That really what we are perceiving is a bunch of electrochemical information. And just to give you an idea of how poor that is, if you hold out your arm straight in front of you with your thumb up, your thumbnail at that distance is about the size of the center of your vision called your fovea. And that's the only place in your vision where you have high-resolution vision. Everywhere else you're clinically blind. And yet it doesn't feel like that when you look against the wall or at a painting. It feels like you can see the whole thing at once, but you can't. You can only see that one little spot, and your visual system is building a simulation of the rest of it for you in your brain based on the memory of when you looked at those different parts with your high-resolution part of your vision. So we have this grand simulation of the world, and magicians, the way their tricks are designed, they take advantage of this. They lead you down the garden path by using this kind of sparse information and making you pay attention to things where you really don't have very much information while they do their secret move somewhere else. Well, finally, Steve, just back to this ESP, this possibility that we could, in fact, have a sixth sense that would tell us when our aunt wasn't feeling well or when, you know, somebody was about to walk into the room. You know, that would have tremendous benefits. And I'm tempted to say the fact that we don't see that or at least don't see good evidence for that means that nature hasn't found a way to do this. On the other hand, I don't see in the ultraviolet either, and that sure exists, and yet nature hasn't figured out a way for me to do that either. Could we reconcile these two things? Could we admit that maybe ESP could exist, but nature just has not had enough engineering time? If you think about it, a radio is kind of like ESP. It's sending signals in the form of photons in the radio wavelength from one place to the other, and I can hear your voice over a cell phone and, and all of these things. And in a sense, that's projecting our conversation from your mouth to my ear through this kind of magical ether that didn't exist 200 years ago. So in that sense, sure, could we implant radios in our head that would allow us to do that, or could we potentially evolve in some way so that you could have a natural radio in your head? I have no problem with that. That's definitely a possibility in the universe. Whether it's happened to humans yet, as a sensory scientist, I can tell you it has not. I've never seen it. Steve Macknick, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much. Neuroscientist Steve Macknick is the author of Slights of Mind, what the neuroscience of magic reveals about our everyday perceptions. And I'm sure you could see this coming. The end of the show. Thanks to help from Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, Jay Weiler, and Keith Rosendahl. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute. Also, our listeners. Keep those comments and suggestions coming on our We Are blog, on our website, or on our Facebook page. You've been listening to Skeptic Check, ESP, or Think Again, our monthly look at critical thinking on Are We Alone? For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. 
I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.